0: Congregate. Uh, it's great to see you here this morning, great to see you online if you're watching online at home. Uh, please have your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 3, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning and uh, let's pray as we come to that. Thank you Father for today, thank you for your word, thank you that we can read it uh, in freedom and in a language we understand. Please help us to hear you speak to us through this passage from Jonah and help me to speak truthfully. In Jesus' name, Amen. I wonder if you're familiar with the concept of a sliding doors moment. Uh, It's the concept of a a relatively minor decision or, or event or moment that changes events dramatically. And it kind of raises the question of what would have happened if, the doors had closed in front of me or I'd make it, made it through the sliding doors, hence the label. So if you're a cricket fan, and I hope some of you are, I am, uh, you might remember the lead up to the second Ashes Test in 2005 in Birmingham. Uh, Australia is one up in the series and looking good uh, but in the warm-up, literally half an hour before play starts, Australia's best bowler, Glenn McGrath, steps on a cricket ball, rolls his ankle and can't play. With Australia's weakened attack, England wins that test and goes on to win the Ashes. How might it have been different if Glenn McGrath had stepped a few centimetres the other way? It might have been more like it is now. Or Andrew Cullen, an Englishman, uh, working on the 89th floor of the second tower of the World Trade, C- Trade Centre on September 11, 2001. At around 9am, 9 a- 9 he gets into a lift and was about to go up when he decided to go down. A few seconds later, the plane struck the building up. But he was below the level of the impact and was able to escape. How different the life of his family would have been if that one single moment would have been different. Or in 1916, during the Battle of the Somme, a German Lance Corporal was sheltering in a dugout during an Allied artillery bombardment. A shell landed near the entrance to his dugout and Lance Corporal Adolf Hitler was injured by shrapnel. If that shell had landed one metre closer, how might history have been different? Small decisions, small moments that could have had major consequences and and they often raise the question, oh, what would have happened if? Or if we'd had that time over again, how would it have been different? The book of Jonah opens with a very clear command. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. There's not much doubt there, is it? That's, that's a very clear command, a very clear instruction. Go and proclaim. Not much kind of wiggle room for, what do you really mean there, God? And the response of Jonah is equally unambiguous. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, which is exactly the opposite direction from Nineveh. Now, as we see from chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah, this this relatively small action, this single act of disobedience, leads to a whole sequence of pretty significant events. Uh, Getting on the ship with the pagan sailors, revealing to them his disobedience of God, they're, they tossing him overboard, being swallowed by the divinely ordained fish, his psalm-like reflection from the inside the fish and finally being vomited up on the beach. A whole chain of events as a result of his response to God's command at the beginning of chapter one. So, what would have happened if his response had been different? if the sliding door moment had been different? How would it have turned out? Well, we don't have to speculate because chapters 3 and 4 tell us. Have a look at the first two verses of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it. Uh, proclaim to it the message I give you. If you compare those verses to the beginning of chapter 1, it's basically the same, isn't it? It's it's a restart. It's a second chance. If you like, Jonah has seen that things haven't really gone the way they should, so he's doing what most of us do exactly when our iPhone isn't responding, we turn it off and turn it on again. And as that restart happens we see the command of God to Jonah is exactly the same. Go to Nineveh and proclaim my message to the city. So the command of God is the same, but what we see from verse 3 is that the response of Jonah is completely different. Just glance back to chapter 1, verse 3, what was Jonah's response? Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. In chapter 3, verse 3, what's his response? Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Why has Jonah changed his mind? We're not told here explicitly, but I reckon it's something to do with being hurled into the stormy sea by pagan sailors, being swallowed by a fish, spending three days inside the fish, probably experiencing something of a rebirth and being regurgitated by the fish. I reckon there might be something in that. But as a result, obedience at this point is the nature of Jonah's response here. Now, what follows in chapter 3 is a short film in five scenes. And as we walk through these five scenes, I want you to imagine that you are the film director making this short film of Jonah's story. I want you to think about not only what is happening in the scene, but also kind of the the mood, the, the vibe, how you might communicate that mood, that vibe, if you were the director. What's your choice of music, lighting, camera shot, things like that. Now, for those of us who are like me, you know, engineering, mathematical, scientific types, that might sound a bit artsy, dramatic and that can be a bit threatening, I know that. But I think some of these narrative sections of the Bible are deliberately written in a dramatic way to, to invite us into the story. So, kind of stepping into this dramatic space is, is not a bad idea, so, so step into it with me. Let's walk very quickly through these five scenes. Scene one is verse 3b. Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Are you thinking a drone shot at sunrise? Coming in across the desert, pulling into the city wall and then rising up over the wall to see down into this bustling Middle Eastern city with markets and activity and, and all that? Now, of course, here in this short introduction, the writer is really underselling Nineveh because I think he thinks we know about Nineveh by reputation. At the time of Jonah, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And when you think Assyria at that time, you think terrified. Imagine, I imagine Nineveh and Assyria might conjure up the same images and feelings as so-called Islamic State or the Taliban. Yes, the city is huge, three days to cross, sounds like Mexico City on a bad traffic day, but it is terrifyingly huge. Assyria is a world superpower, it was well known to be pagan, cruel and unforgiving. In fact, in your Bible, a few pages after Jonah, is the book of Nahum, which is a prophecy against Nineveh. A a quick read through Nahum leaves us in no doubt that this is a fearsome people, violent, powerful to be feared. Let me read you a short passage from the history of Israel, 2 Kings chapter 19, when Hezekiah is king of Judah. Uh, Assyria, led by King Sennacherib, has come up against Judah and are mocking Hezekiah's attempts to defend himself. 2 Kings 19 verses 16 and 17, Hezekiah cries out to God saying, it's on the screen I think, "'Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands.'" They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them for they were not gods but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. The Assyrians are known for their ruthless destruction and Nineveh is their capital and it is there where Jonah is commanded to go. Now, I think if we understand the reputation that Nineveh has we might not be so quick to judge Jonah's first response to God's word to go the other way. How would you feel if God commanded you to go to the deserts of Syria and speak a message of God's judgment to so-called Islamic State? Just before we move on to the next scene, just let me pause for just a moment and say for God to command His word to be declared in the context of a foreign people, more than that, a dangerous foreign people, that is not some isolated incident and it is not out of character for Him. No, no. All throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we see His desire for people of all tribes, all nations, all languages to hear His Word and bow their knee before the true and living God. It is why we continue to send missionaries all around the world and it is why missionaries continue to go to places where they are kidnapped, killed, yelled at, ridiculed and abused. Uh, Just this week, we've been attending CMS Summer School Uh, online. About half of the CMS missionaries in attendance this year could not go up on stage because they serve in locations where they're, they're, um, for their own security and for the security of people they work with, that would be threatened if their face was on the internet. Half of the CMS missionaries are in that situation. And CMS does that and and we, as a fellowship, support them to do that because it is God's consistent character and message to say, go to hard places and declare my word to that place. Scene 2, verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, up until this point, we've only heard God's repeated command to Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. But now, in this second scene, we hear the content of his preaching. And it's a warning. Destruction is imminent. So, try and picture the scene again. An obvious foreigner has walked into this great city, the city that has a reputation for viciousness and strength, and he stood there in the plaza and said... God is going to destroy you. Again, I think I'm going to need my drone to shoot this scene. Start close in on Jonah, focus him on speaking the words, probably with a bit of a nervous quiver in his voice, and then pan out, showing a threatening crowd of Ninevites closing in on him. Scene three, the response of the Ninevites. But instead of Tearing this puny, slightly fish-smelling preacher of judgment limb from limb, and showing him that no one messes with the Ninevites, the Ninevites listen and believe. They fast and they put on sackcloth, the traditional symbols of mourning and repentance. And, and verse five leaves us in no doubt that this is a this is a city-wide response. Three times the verse makes sure we know, as a whole, the city as responding. To the proclaimed judgment of God. The Ninevites, plural, believed God. All of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And in fact, in scene four, this, the theme of response of the Ninevites continues. In scene four, we're taken inside the royal court, where the king himself has heard the message and And he himself takes on the pose of a man in mourning and repentance, in sackcloth and ashes. He is the king, the top dog. And yet he is in the most humble position possible, mourning and confessing before God. And from this position, he declares a decree that everyone and everything enter this posture of mourning not only that, but urgently call on God, repent from our evil ways. The desperation in this decree echoes the panicked prayers of the sailors in their face of death in chapter 1. Please, anyone, save us. It's almost like we're making a deal with God. Look at how we've repented God. As a city, we've given up our evil ways, but it's an uncertain deal. The great king of Nineveh, the feared feared king of Nineveh, who's used to making commands and smashing his enemies, is reduced to saying, who knows? There's no certainty. This is not a guaranteed transaction, not a checklist. Okay, yep, ten evil acts stopped. Immunity from destruction achieved. No. The warrior king of Nineveh is begging... Wondering, hoping. Well, the last scene, verse 10, means our movie can be shown on Disney Plus rather than being destined to end up in the depths of SBS On Demand because it's the happy ending we want. God sees their repentance, literally their change in direction, and He doesn't destroy them. It's a a joyful climax to, to what has been a tense and dangerous sequence. Jonah has proclaimed God's message of judgment, the Ninevites have heard the message and they've responded appropriately and they've been rewarded in that sense for their obedience, preserved rather than destroyed. The camera can pan out, returning to the desert, leaving behind a city intact, a city transformed, cue stirring music. One of the courses I I taught regularly in in Mexico was a a Bible overview course. Uh, We'd take 10 weeks to to think about the whole Bible, the message of the whole Bible, and think about how different books of the Bible fitted into the message of the whole Bible. And in the context of that course, I'd often do an exercise with the students where I'd, I'd get them to draw an emoji or or a little icon to represent uh, different books of the Bible. It was a a way to kind of get them to think about the key theme, key message of the book. It was always an interesting exercise when we came to Jonah. How would you represent the book of Jonah in a little icon or, or an emoji? Many would draw a fish, a big fish, I mean, fair enough, not bad, kind of makes sense in terms of it being a memory hook uh, for the book. But really, Jonah's not about the fish, is it? In fact, the fish is a very minor character. So how would you do it? Because in the end, Jonah is a story about a merciful God and people hearing the word of God and repenting in response of what they hear. And after three chapters, we've got there. Perhaps, you know, a picture of a Ninevite putting his evil deeds behind him and and living happily or something sums up the book. Perhaps. But there's just one problem. Jonah's got four chapters... And it's the fourth chapter where things get really complicated. If there were only three chapters and we'd shot our final scene of the renewed Nineveh and rolled credits, great. But there's more. Um, Steve's going to look at chapter four next week, but we're just going to have a sneak peek at the first three verses. Because having seen what happened in Nineveh at the beginning of chapter four, the camera returns to Jonah. And how does he feel? Let's read from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Basically, he's saying, I knew this would happen. I knew you would do this. God's problem is that God's action has been consistent with His character. He knows the character of God, slow to anger, abounding in love. That is directly from Exodus chapter uh, 34. It was in Psalm 103. That is on the public record about who God is. Jonah's problem is that God's action has reflected that character. And the Ninevites... Have been the recipients of that action. See, for Jonah, the problem isn't that God has the characteristics. He's not complaining about what God is like, he's complaining about who is the recipient of what God is like. After all, I don't hear him complaining when he is the recipient of God being gracious and compassionate. Chapter 2, verse 9. I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. It's all good when He gets rescued. And I suspect if the Ninevites hadn't repented and God had come good on His promise and wiped them out, he wouldn't have been crying about that. No, no, Jonah wants God to be a good God, to be a, a consistent God with his character, but to the right people. Sounds a bit selfish, doesn't it? And I wonder if that's where this section of Jonah takes us. Are we prepared to be obedient to God and let Him do His work, even if it doesn't line up with what we want to happen or who we want it to happen to? And that's the reason we read that section in Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in His hometown in Nazareth. There's there's this enormous expectation surrounding Him because He's been ministering in the surrounding areas, doing miracles, preaching, and and now He's come back home. And He's he's, uh, on the preaching roster for the synagogue that Saturday. The place is packed, everyone's looking forward to it, great. The daily scripture reading has been read from Isaiah chapter 61, which is a really well-known passage in in Jewish liturgy about the coming Messiah and the redemption he will bring. And Jesus stands up and in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, says this. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the long-awaited Messiah is here and it's me. Well, in the very next verse, verse 22, Luke tells us that they all spoke well of him and were amazed. Hooray, they say, we're on board. Well, of course they are, they're faithful Jews, they're expecting the Messiah. The Messiah's come and said, here I am. But in verse 29, just seven verses later, the same crowd, just a matter of a few minutes later after the sermon, they are trying to take him to a local cliff and throw him off it. They are so furious. Why? What changes? Well, in the space of those seven verses, Jesus explains what it means for Him to be the Messiah and He does that using two stories from Israel's history, the the miraculous feeding of the widow of Zarephath in the time of Elijah and the miraculous healing of Naaman the Syrian in the time of Elisha. Two great stories from two great heroes of Israel but it infuriates the people in the synagogue enough that they want to kill him. Why? Because those two people, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman, they're both Gentiles. Zarephath, where the widow is from, absolutely not Israel, and yet she experienced the blessing of God. And Naaman the Syrian, well, his name kind of gives it away, it's the Syrian He's Syrian, he's not Israelite. Again, he experiences the blessings of God. See, in the mind of the Nazareth congregation that day, the long-awaited-for Messiah is their Messiah. They're all for a merciful God, a compassionate God, but the mercy and the compassion have to be directed the right way, their way, only. Jonah sulks. The people in the synagogue try and kill Jesus. It's more or less the same problem. Great God, be the God that you are, but be it for us. I wonder if sometimes we can be a bit Jonah-like. That is kind of possessive about God kind of expecting God to do the things we want in the way we want them to be done. Maybe being a bit sort of selfish about where God is doing it, focusing on on our patch maybe. We can get so caught up in what He's doing here or in our life or under our conditions that we can forget or worse, even get a bit kind of jealous about what He's doing for other people maybe not jealous, but kind of, you know, we've got limited resources, let's use our resources here. Whether those resources be prayer, time, people, money, I don't know. Are we willing to share Jesus around? Or is He just Jesus for us? One of the great movements that's happening in the moment in world Christianity is that the centre of power and influence in the Christian world, is moving from Europe and the United States to Africa and Asia. Uh, whereas in Western countries, churches are shrinking and Jesus is being ignored, in Africa or in, in Asia, there is massive growth happening. Wonderful evangelism, growth in opportunities and training. Um, did you know that there are more people in church in Indonesia today, than there are people in Australia and Indonesia is a Muslim country. But it's interesting to see how those who are in power positions are responding to the movement. Sometimes it's possible to see a bit of Jonah in their response. I think as a church we need to make sure we don't fall into that trap. Now, don't Hear me wrong, I think we do a pretty good job in uh, praying for all sorts of things at church uh, here. The scope of it, the prayers, our prayers here on Sunday is excellent. But we need to be deliberate to keep that going. Praying for people outside our circle, praying for our missionaries, praying for what God is doing around the world. We need to keep that up lest we be Jonah-like. When we're planning our church activities, our church budget, we need to keep on being deliberate to make sure that we are looking out, not just being focused here, kind of lowering our eyes to what is immediately around us, lest we be Jonah-like. When we're sharing prayer points at Bible study, we need to share beyond work and family challenges, but instead be proactive in thinking about other people Other places, lest we become Jonah like. The message from Jonah is that God is doing great work in many places, in many different people groups, and we should be praising Him for that. Let's not be insular. Instead, let's rejoice in what God is doing for all sorts of people in all sorts of places and be thankful and involved in that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are the Lord of all creation, of all peoples and nations. Thank you that you are working in all sorts of places, and people from many tribes and tongues are hearing your word and responding in trust and obedience. Father, we praise you for that, and we thank you for them Help us to be people who have an eye for your work in the world and help us to be thankful for that work and involved in it where we can be. Father, we do pray for people we know who are declaring Jesus in difficult places. Please strengthen them, give them boldness and please have mercy on the people who listen that they may turn to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.